Not very often do you find a true crime story that is also the author's memoir. In Mothers and Murderers, Catherine Ellison weaves her life story throughout a crime that she covered as a journalist and explains how characters in both stories combine to impact her life. This is Imagine Publicity on Air, and I'm your host, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. Um, and people are saying in a delightful, insightful prose, Ellison reflects on her mistakes and her triumphs as she weaves together the stories of how her Pulitzer Prize winning career almost ended before it began, how she nearly missed marrying the love of her life, and how she unwittingly got drawn into a stranger than fiction murder case, rich in drama and self-reflection, replete with unique characters, including two bumbling hitmen, a rodeo riding prosecutor, a flamboyant Beverly Hills defense attorney, and a charismatic stay-at-home mother of three who is keeping outrageous secrets. Mothers and Murderers is a mashup of Fargo, Body Heat, and Eat, Pray, Love, guaranteed to make you laugh, cry, and think. I am honored and thrilled to have uh, Catherine Ellison as my guest today. Catherine, welcome. Hi. Hi. You know, usually this is the point where I ask authors to give us a little bit about your background, but your book covers a lot (laughs) of your background, so why don't we just jump right in there? Sounds great. Do you want me to tell you the story of the book? Well, I think, you know, I think what I was most curious about is you had a dream to be a journalist at a very young age. And how did that come about and how did you make that dream come true? Sure. Um, When I was about 11, I wrote an essay for Archie Comics about our um, pet miniature schnauzer. And they printed it and sent me a $10 check. And I think from that day on, I knew what my career path would be. My three siblings are all doctors. Two of them are psychiatrists, which is kind of a warning sign. Um, But uh, I was like the youngest and just determined to do something different. Plus, I really love to read and write. So did you do a lot of writing when you you were going through school? I did. Growing up. Yeah, absolutely. I have shelves lined with notebooks that I kept. I kept. I've been journaling since I was, you know, at least thirteen. That's amazing. I, I, you know, I think it, journaling in itself kind of came about as one of those new things to do, and I never could get into it. I don't know why. I, I never kept a diary as a child, and. I just couldn't get into journaling, but I've always envied people who could. So you can actually pull a notebook off your shelf and read about what was going on that day. It's a wonderful resource, and I found it also really helpful in in the writing of this memoir and another one I wrote. I just kind of had to do it. It It became almost a coping method to have a notebook. And I teach writing in juvenile hall every Monday, and I tell the kids that your notebook can really be your friend. You can make your problems smaller by writing about them, and you can just put all your thoughts, your worst thoughts, your best thoughts, someplace where other people don't need to see it. But it's it's almost like talking to a friend. Uh, 
Exactly. I, I think it's just a great thing to be able to do that. So at this young age, you, you knew what you wanted to be when you grew up, which a lot of people don't. Um, and, and your pursuit of this career took you to a lot of very exotic places, meeting a lot of what I would consider exotic people along the way and experiencing some things that most average people don't have the opportunity to experience. Do you want to tell a little bit about those? Sure. Uh, one of the things that I discovered only when I was about 48 years old was that I have ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And like a lot of parents, I, I gained that insight by watching my son go through it. It's a highly hereditary syndrome. And it really, one of the main um, it, it traits is to be novelty seeking. And I think one reason I became a journalist is because I was constantly looking for new things, adventures and high stimulation kind of situations. And I definitely found them. I started out writing local news as, as a freelancer. And then I went to Cuba after I graduated college and wrote a series of freelance stories there that was vaguely tied to my undergraduate thesis. And then after that, I spent some time in London working for Newsweek on an internship um, that brought me by a strange detour to Pakistan. And then I came back to the San Jose Mercury News, where I realized that if I was going to fulfill this dream that I had by then, which was to be a foreign correspondent, I'd have to start with the basics. So at the San Jose Mercury News, I covered courts, I covered local government, and really learned how to be a, a news reporter. And then luckily got a chance to go to Asia and cover the Philippines and then be based in Latin America for about 14 years. Quite a life, quite quite some traveling too, and, and it must have been quite exciting for you. You say that at the, at the Mercury you were assigned to the court beat, and, and from what I've read, you were very good at it. So how how did the the knowledge that you gained by doing that how did that impact your career? Well, the book is about when you say good at it I I almost have to laugh because the book starts with me making a clumsy mistake that got me sued for 11 million dollars for libel. They um mistakenly wrote that a woman who hadn't been charged with any crime was charged with murder or conspired to do a murder. And so I, I mean, I was good at my job in terms of ferreting out a lot of drama in stories. And at first, my editors really liked me, and a lot of my stories landed on the front page. And I worked harder than anybody I knew. But I also was making a lot of mistakes before that really big mistake. I was writing mostly little mistakes. And then I made that doozy, and I thought I might be fired. But they gave me another chance, for which I'm really grateful. And I cleaned up my act and started showing them how I could yeah, I wanted to redeem myself in their eyes, so I went to Africa and then Central America as a freelancer and wrote stories for the paper from there on my vacation. And then they assigned me to a story, an investigative series on the Philippines, and that's how I finally got back in their good graces. Yeah, and then let's let's just go ahead and jump into this case where you were sued for eleven million dollars and mm -hmm. almost ended your career before mm -hmm. it really took off. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, a lot of the book is devoted to this, but then you also go back and forth with some of your own family dynamics. And it kind of, there's kind of an overlay there is what I took out of it, that um, maybe some of the personalities you see here, you see here. But Mm -hmm. let's kind of maybe briefly give an overview of this case that you were following, because it's, yeah, it's quite (laughs) eye-opening. Yeah, well, one of the biggest stories I was assigned to on the court beat was a trial of a murderer, accused murderer, named Robert Singer, who was, he owned a franchise restaurant in Flint, Michigan, but he'd recently moved there from San Jose, California. And he'd recently also divorced his wife and married a woman named Judith, then Judith Singer. Um, Judith was, uh, she she was a very mysterious person in her way. You knew that there was more going on under the surface than she seemed. But on on the outside, she was a stay-at-home, upper-middle-class, devoted mother of three who was you know, in distress about her husband standing trial for this murder. And the victim of the murder happened to be Judy's ex-husband, um, a wealthy young man named Howard Whitkin. So apparently her second husband, to her surprise, was now accused of plotting the murder of her first husband and the father of her three children. And those are the circumstances where I met her. And she was always very friendly to me and always kind of taking a very prominent position in the trial. She was always giving statements to the press and trying to sort of direct our coverage. And she just seemed really involved in the case. And the victim's relatives were speculating that she had to have known about it at at, at least. So I think, I don't know if if this speculation kind of entered my subconsciousness and made me make that mistake, but... I misparaphrased the prosecutor in the case as saying that Judy and her husband, Robert Singer, had plotted the murder of Howard Whitkin, her ex-husband, which was completely not true. The prosecutor never said that. So about two weeks after that, uh, I got handed a, a summons to this libel suit, and she was suing us, me and the paper, for $11 million. And it almost got me fired. Uh, but they, you know, as I said, they gave me another chance. And um, then the case unfolded. And without giving away too much, it about 14 years later, uh, the police arrested Judy because it turned out that she really had been involved in the murder. So I was right, although I was wrongly right. <laughs> well, let's, let's just insert this now, just for people who don't know, this case took back took place back in the early 80s and things right, were a little bit different back then yeah right, and right. you know women were were still trying to crash through the the glass ceiling as in your own career and mm-hmm. to you know make a name for themselves and and a career for themselves and be a little more equal in the workplace and um but then you have someone like Judy who was kind of the opposite. She, like you described, was from upper middle class, three children, and that was her dream. And, and so it, there's kind of a a contrast there that I saw. You have 
this type of person who is striving for perfection, maybe um, the home, the husband, kids, and status. And didn't you find that possibly in your own mother? Right. Um, it was. I think this is one of the major themes of the book. So I really appreciate you asking about it. 1981 was about the first year of what has been called the backlash against feminism. All through the 1970s when I was in high school and being encouraged to do what I could with my education and support myself and be independent, um, women made a lot of progress breaking through some of those you know, doors that were closed to us before. And then all of a sudden, 1980, you get Ronald Reagan elected, and he's talking about family values, and the culture seems to be sort of turning against this idea that women should be more independent. There was there were a lot of movies that kind of featured women's regret about not having babies, and this was a Newsweek, and there were all these stories about the feminist revolution that had failed, and so the mood was turning in the country, but I still was very ambitious. I desperately wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I thought that was the most glamorous, wonderful career you could aspire to. At at the same time, I came from a home where the model that I had was my mother, who I loved deeply, who was extremely in the um, model of the women that Betty Friedan wrote about with the feminine mystique. She was a great housekeeper. She put a lot of attention on how she dressed and always talked about herself as a mother and wife and didn't have really a a career or a separate identity from her family. And that was the last thing I wanted. And I think when I saw that in Judy, who was just 32 years old and had been in college during all the feminist breakthroughs, it just didn't seem quite right or honest. And she was kind of flaunting her you know, her motherhood and um, her perfect wifeness, And there was just something that just seemed off about it. Agreed. <laughs> and I think, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of the, what you wrote in the book also about certain personality disorders and, you know, you, you kind of studied them along the way as well. And do you feel that some of these disorders are hereditary or, or is it a product of environment? Because I know, speaking about Judy's family history, her mother was was kind of a manipulator as well. That's true. Her mother was a flaming narcissist. And you, you can tell it from the records of the uh, divorce proceedings that she had with her husband. She was a very wealthy, very stylish woman who just, captivated everybody's attention and demanded attention and wasn't that wonderful a mother to her daughter. Her daughter grew up with that kind of mother and a stepfather who apparently was very violent. And so I don't know if um, the, the particular disorder that I talk about with in connection with Judy is, is narcissism. And I've been fascinated to read up on that subject and especially to read that it's it's mostly most narcissists have deep childhood wounds. It might not come as a big surprise to people that the people who most flaunt their superiority are the most nervous about it because they've been demeaned or not valued by their parents. So it's more of an environmental thing, I think, than a hereditary thing. 
In some cases, I, I have a very good friend who is, I think, an expert in the field, uh, Sandra L. Brown. She has written books, sim- How to Spot a Dangerous Man, Why Do Women mm. Love Psychopaths. And you may mm. be familiar with her. Um, if not, you need to read her books. Because I she do, could I offer do, I want to. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she she explains several different ways as as far as explaining narcissism. And one thing that I took away from her writings was, you know, so many children with this disorder grow up mirroring what they see in society and they're very good at it. And it's something that they grow up doing. So their own personalities are really kind of diminished in this other personality tends to take over in the sense that it's mirroring what it sees and what's acceptable they're going to do to a certain point. And then, you know, maybe something else comes out along the way, but um, I I'm like you, I think it's a very fascinating subject and I have read quite a bit about it as well. It really raises the question of how much sympathy do you, can you, can you muster for somebody who like Judy did so much damage in the world. Like one of the things that was really most tragic in her story was the impact that she had on her three children who presumably were the reasons that she did everything she did. You know, she always bragged and doted on them. And, but, but really she was um, quite abusive and, and did was responsible for killing their father. So she did all this damage out of her own illness. But when what what is the point where you start saying she should be locked up, you know, interminably? I mean, she served 25 years in prison, which I certainly think it was enough for her crime. But um, it's just a question, uh, you know. Do you ever forgive somebody like that? Do you ever really, knowing what you can learn about their their history and what formed them, how much compassion do you have before it turns into what? Buddhists call idiot compassion, where you're not looking out for yourself. Right, and and in the court system, have did and maybe even during this case, was anything about this brought up in court? The pathology that she, that she exhibited? No, really not. Um, the, I think maybe her her defense lawyer could have done something with it, possibly at her sentencing hearing at least. Uh, But whenever I talked to her, I found a lot about her stepfather's violence with her and her mother's neglect of her. But when I had many chances to interview her, and whenever I asked about these questions, she would just deny them. She was so invested in this perfect story of a happy childhood that I knew was false. So I doubt very much that she ever opened up to her um, lawyer or, or that he could have, you know, I don't think you can do much with narcissism or child abuse in the court system, even though they're, they're very serious issues and strong determinants of somebody's behavior. Well, and she always felt like she was the victim. And I, I've, I've run up against a couple of people in my lifetime that exhibit these traits and it's really kind of scary and you don't realize how 
you've been woven into their web and mm-hmm. the lies that they tell seem like truth and, and all of the bad things are happening to them. How could this be? And right. it's, you would think, well, I think back in the 80s, we weren't looking at this. I think a lot more information and research has come out lately about this uh, disorder. And it's something that can't be fixed, but at least we can recognize it. And maybe people who don't have the disorder can figure out how to best um either be in a relationship with someone like that or not be in one. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I don't know if it can't be fixed. I, I've, I've read um, books by Craig Malkin. Who's um, he's a professor at Harvard who writes a lot about narcissism and he holds out some hope for it, but you narcissists are particularly difficult from what I've read to treat because they're so invested in the story that nothing is wrong with them, right? That they that they very rarely make a lot of good progress in therapy. It's tough to break through that that shield, that kind of protective shield that they throw up. Well, in the way that they manipulate, I think also, and in, in Judy's case, maybe you want to, without giving a lot away about the book, maybe you can go through some of the ways that, she was able to manipulate not only in her own family, but other people and other men that she was involved with. Yeah, it was, she was an incredibly uh, seductive uh, person in her way. She ended up not only uh, convincing this second husband of hers to do her bidding and kill her first husband, but she had an affair with the husband's lawyer while the husband was on trial and that threw the case into chaos, and he had to be retried. And then later on had this series of affairs. She seemed able to manipulate and charm people, which narcissists often do. But you're absolutely right about this the strength of somebody playing the victim, and she did it really well. I, I documented pretty much throughout her life. She managed to portray herself as somebody who was a victim. And I think the when she sued me, she said a lot of really outrageous things in the suit, like I'd made her unemployable forever, and you know I'd, I'd brought shame on her children, and it, it, just the language she used in the in the suit was was quite an example of somebody playing the victim, which is a standard thing that they do. Well, and in writing this book, I mean, you you covered the trial, but it went on and on and on for many years. And so in writing the book, you went back and interviewed not only Judy, but all of the other players in the case. When you had meetings with her, how did you feel? I mean, how did she make you feel personally? You know, what's really funny is that I did have a lot of access to her. She was really, she's very smart. And so she was very curious about what I was doing and what I was finding out and was trying to control it. But I remember and, and, and wrote about this once visiting her at the jail. I, she fought extradition in Flint for about four years. I mean, she really, really delayed on purpose, delayed the trial because she was pretty comfortable in Flint and didn't want to go to San Jose. And she thought that the case would get weaker over time. But the sheriff at the Flint jail, he, he was this guy who reporters, local reporters, called Never Say No Joe. His name was Joe Wilson. 
So he was already pretty, uh, kind of a softy, but he really sort of fell for Judy. He would let her do a lot of things that other inmates didn't get to do. He had her speak at his community college class. So when I showed up and she was willing to see me, he let us use his office for about six days in a row. So I would come and we would sit in his nice warm office while it was snowing outside and just have these leisurely talks. But the very first time I saw her, she was sitting in her jumpsuit and I had on all these new clothes that I bought with my book advance. And I just remember feeling how she still made me feel like compared to her, like I was not feminine. <laughs> you know, um, She just, she just had a way about her that was, that, that just could make you feel quite inferior. And I was always really curious, like how she, how she did that or what was in me that responded to that. But she also sat there giving me advice about how to write the book. She said, you'll start with the murder, won't you? And you know, I was thinking about it. <laughs> she was quite, she seemed kind of controlling in her, in her soft way. Oh yeah. They're very soft ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this is kind of a different book. It is a true crime book, but it's also a memoir. Why did you weave this together? It's not done very often. And I, I I got to say, I felt that it was very, very interesting. Thank you very much. Um, I made that decision. At first, I wrote it straight. I got a contract from Simon & Schuster in 1991, and I tried to write the book in just as a straight murder story, which was what they supposedly wanted. And I couldn't. I could not do it. I just tried several times to, to write it, and eventually they canceled the contract, and I had to put my notes aside and go on to other things. But years later, I realized that some of the things that obsessed me about Judy were so close to my own life, involving my own complicated feelings towards my mother and, and traits that I saw in Judy that I also sometimes saw in myself, like playing the victim. I, I could do that quite a bit myself. And so that's where my fascination lay. And so I decided to to try to tell both stories at once. Of, and the other thing is, there's to me it seemed like there was a pretty strong plot line in the fact that because of her lawsuit, I went into psychotherapy and and had to confront some of these less attractive things about myself and had to kind of go back to my childhood and, and see what had made me into me while I was seeing what made her into her. And it, the two parallel investigations of the murder case and my finding out all these things seemed to me like interesting plot lines to weave together. I thought it was great. I, I really did. Thank like you. I say, I've, I've read a lot of true crime books over the years, but nothing <laughs> quite like this. It's, and, and I like the I like the difference because, you know, you can only tell the dry details over and over so many times <laughs> before, you know, it just becomes redundant. But adding in your own story and because you really I mean, you took this case very seriously number one because you were being sued you kind of had to um but the way you followed it for for years and years um i mean when was the last time you had an interview with somebody like 2018 (laughs) well 2018 just last year but but you're right i was i was 
I was unreasonably obsessed with this story. I mean, I'm still kind of trying to figure out why it had so much power over me. I know that the timing, that whole thing about the backlash against feminism and that weird time in which I met her and how much she seemed to be just this representative of the hypocrisy of of what women had to do to exercise their power, all that really fascinated me. And the secrets she was obviously keeping fascinated me. And I felt like I really had to get to the bottom of it. But what I didn't realize was I was also really struggling to get to the bottom of my own story and how I could be a better person. I think the book is is really about a quest to be more self-aware and the damage that a lack of self-awareness can do in your life. So I, it, it helped me. It really inspired me through my life to be more conscious of my impact on other people and and there's so much blind behavior that we do, so so much behavior that we don't understand why we're doing it. And I, I wanted as much as possible to, to get more clear about that. Well, the, the quest of yours, and, and I, I totally agree, I think if we're not aware of our own selves, how are we functioning in the world? But this this quest that we actually all go on at some point or another to to be more self aware and to be a better person and how did that impact the people around you in your life? It had a very strong impact. I think I'm very grateful to Judy in a way because had she not sued me and had I, I because I would not have gone into psychotherapy. At, 23 years old you know I had other things I wanted to do and I I shouldn't want to spend the money but it was pretty much a matter of keeping my job I really had to figure out why I'd made that mistake and why I seemed to be so self-destructive and her lawsuit was quite a timely wake-up call and at the time that she sued me I was going down this path where I was being very dishonest with men which was one of the things that I saw in her that that made me so angry in a way, just how she manipulated men. And then I saw it in myself, and luckily I saw it in time to not completely screw up um, a relationship I was developing with a man who became my husband because I wasn't – I loved him, but I wasn't being honest with him, and I couldn't figure out why. And it was only after sort of confronting – myself and the things that I wasn't even aware I was doing that I had a bit of grip on it and could could enter into a marriage that was more it was it was a lot I believe it was a lot more honest than my parents my own parents had yeah I think you're right we all have demons that we have to face and if we (laughs) and someone such as Judy is not about to face them I mean, they no. create new ones, <laughs> and that, but I, I think, you know, once we face those demons and back them down, we do come out a little more aware of our surroundings and who we are and, and hopefully come out the other end a better person that we're striving to be. Right. I I had a real problem with trusting people that I had to confront because I had kind of a, a difficult childhood and... But I also had to be a more trustworthy person. And it took understanding the former to get to the latter. Uh, But I felt sorry for Judy once I really learned a lot about her. I couldn't help it because she'd never had that opportunity. She'd never had somebody force her kicking and screaming, you know, to go, go through all that hard work. 
No, she probably wouldn't have gone anyway. <laughs> I don't know. So, I don't know. People get kind so, of solidified. Maybe there would have been an opportunity, you know, in her early 20s when she could have changed. Well, we can only hope, really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it's got to give hope to other people out there who are, are suffering the same personality disorder. Although I think in, in people like Judy, in those cases, they don't, they never will realize it because they, they aren't willing to look at it realistically. Uh, you know, that's just my opinion, but. No, I mean, and, you're right. In her case, I think you're right because at 72 years old, I went and saw her parole hearing um, just a few months ago and she was still, she was still lying and she was still portraying herself as a victim. And it, the parole commission saw right through it and was goading her about it and calling her on, on, on the obvious lies she was telling. But, uh, but they still let her out because she's 72, she served 25 years and she's quite ill now, but mm-hmm. it it was it was really sad, and when I say she did a lot of damage to her kids, I think if she'd have been honest with them, despite what she did, that would have helped quite a lot. Right. Well, when she was confronted with her lies by people in authority, such as the parole board, what was her reaction? To cry and deny it, and 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 again describe herself as you know somebody who was on the wrong end of the stick and the whole world was oppressing. Um, and also she made a, she made a big, I mean, what's one of the things that's so fascinating about her is how much she strived for perfection. Like even in prison, she was, she was described as a model prisoner and she went through all the rehabilitation therapy groups and um, she, you know, so she, she was, part of that and she was also a liaison with the inmates to the officials and just really strive to be a, a great example but I don't think much of it really penetrated because it's almost like she was going through the motions and just striving for the gold stars without really having it change her right that that Unfortunately, we look, we can look at it and think, what a sad life. However, I don't think she would ever admit to that or ever recognize it as something that was out of her normal. I guess we all have no, our No, I mean, I, no, she, I think she was crushed. Like her oldest son, who was supposedly her, you know, her dearest favorite, he, uh, there's, it's it's not quite clear, but it, it looks pretty probable that he committed suicide and she was still telling him that she had nothing to do with the murder, and it's possible that he just couldn't live with that tension of being her son and kind of knowing that she was guilty. And I do think when she talked about that at the parole commission, I, I think her, her pain was genuine. I think she, on some level, she realizes the harm she's done. I just don't think she's capable of really facing it, which is, to me, it's one of the most you know, terrifying stories of all because it's it's almost like the banality of evil. You know, I mean, this this is a woman who I could have met at our synagogue. I could have, you know, she could have been one of my parents' friends. I think that's another reason I just was fascinated by her. But she did she did so much damage. And and not only not realizing it, but not going to make atonement for it. Yeah, yeah. I think in the end, that's probably true. 
Right. Well, let me ask you this. You said you had a contract with Simon & Schuster. Well, how did you come about to have Wild Blue Press as your publisher? <laughs> um, it, I'm writing a whole article about this, actually, because, you know, one of the themes of the book is the power of your unconscious. I think the power of my unconscious played a part when I made that mistake with Judy that got me into this mess to begin with. And then I think it came back when I had this contract from Simon and Schuster and I was trying to write this straight murder story. I, I've written 10 nonfiction books and compared to this, they were all like a piece of cake. For some reason, I just couldn't do it. I mean, I, I turned in something, but it was, I knew it was horrible and my editor knew it was horrible. I just couldn't write it well. And so ultimately, they they gave me a couple chances to try to rewrite it, and I tried, but ultimately they canceled, Simon & Schuster canceled the contract. So it just was gnawing at me that that I hadn't been able to do it, and I went on and did all this other freelancing and all these other jobs, and then I would keep coming back to it. And so in like 2012, I went back and visited Judy in prison, and I found an agent, and she was actually really excited about the story too, and I tried to write it again and failed. And But we, we both thought that the manuscript was okay enough to send to top editors. So we sent it around and, you know, and we came close in some cases, but, but nobody wanted it. And then I rewrote it again and nobody wanted it. And then um, my parents died, both of them in, in 2017 and 2018. And I have to say for all the, craziness of my family life I really really loved them and they really loved me and their other three children so that was a a major event event in my life to lose them but it also freed me because we had such a taboo in our family against airing dirty laundry as my mother called it 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 freed me to write the story as I think in the best way that I think it could be written and then somebody told me about Wild Blue Press, so I sent it to Steve Jackson, and he, he said he loved the story, and we had a contract within a week. So it was almost like there was a, a window that, that opened where it was right, that that timing was, was right. That's great. They're wonderful people, wonderful people yeah. to work with. I can't say enough good about Wild Blue Press. That's and I'm great. happy that, I'm happy they took the book. And then, you know, looking at all of the other titles and and um books that you've written are very informational. And uh-huh. I can see how the different how it would be more difficult for you to write this book rather than, you know, relying on information and putting information into a book. You're right. It was, there was that too. It was quite a transition to be thinking of suspense and character development and all those other things that are are more common in fiction. Cause I had been a journalist and a reporter through all those years. So I I joined a writer's group that, that helped me a lot, but then I got sick of the story. So then I joined another writer's group, and that they helped me kind of get over the finish line. So where would uh, we want to buy this book? Oh, thank <laughs> Mothers you very much. and Murderers. <laughs> Let's get the title out there a few more times. Mothers <laughs> and Murderers is the title of the book by Catherine Ellison. Thank you. Yeah, it's available on Amazon. It's available at Barnes & Noble, Target. 
you can look on my website, which is www.catherineellison.com, and uh, Catherine with a K, and you can um, see all the places that you can buy it there. I'm I'm very happy that some independent bookstores are selling it, and an airport store is also selling it in the San Francisco Bay Area, hoping to get it into more stores. Great. Are you planning any book signings or appearances? I I am. I did one at uh, Book Passage, which is my all-time favorite bookstore in the world. And then I have a benefit coming up um, next month, December 15th, at the Court of Madeira, Barnes & Noble. The benefit happens to be for a group called Opening the World Through Travel, which takes kids who are at risk to foreign countries to do public service. And one thing I really love about them and what ties them a lot with my book is they're all about giving people second chances. So I'm really, really proud to be um, collaborating with them. So that's December. And then in January, I'll be speaking in San Jose at the Books, Inc. and in Berkeley's Books, Inc. That's great. That's great. And I hope every anybody and everybody who is in the area will come out and uh, listen to you and get a copy of the book and get it signed. Thank you. I'd be happy to do that. I have a so, Facebook page too. But <laughs> that was that was going to be this. my next question: <laughs> How you. people can find you? How how can we contact you? I'm through your website, KatherineEllison.com, through Facebook. Yeah, I'm all over the web. Yeah, yeah. Catherine is K A T H E R I N E. Ellison is E L L I S O N. And I I try to cover a lot of things on my Facebook page. I use it to to keep people informed about ADHD, which is another kind of cause of mine. But these days I'm mainly writing about mothers and murders. Great. So if you had one thing about this mothers and murderers that you would like listeners to take away with them today, what would it be? I think it would have to be the thing that we discussed about the surprising power of your unconscious to make you do things that you might not ordinarily do and 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 how being self-aware can make the difference between leading a life that you end up being pretty fulfilled by or doing a lot of damage in the world so i think the power of self-awareness is is really one of the main messages of the book Agree wholeheartedly, and I I can't tell you how much I enjoyed reading the book, and I highly recommend it to everyone out there listening today. Get a copy through Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and you know go to your local bookstores, no matter where you are in the country. And if uh, they don't have it on the shelf, ask for it; they'll get it for you. And maybe you can bring Catherine into. speak on a number of different topics that you can find on her website and follow her on Facebook. Thank you so much for giving up Thank your you, time. Delilah. It's, it's been, been great. It has. And as everyone goes out there in this big bad world trying to do whatever it is that you're wanting to do, whatever your dreams might be, if you're still trying to crash that glass ceiling, good for you. But let's remember one thing. Be kind to each other. I I agree. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Catherine. Wow, you are a great interviewer. I so appreciate you actually read the book. (laughs) Oh, yes, I did. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. 